Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's back, Dragon Con, the annual multimedia and pop cultural event. So we're going to bring to you some of our favorite Dragon Con, all things Dragon Con related conversations. I think Dragon Con has a lot of history. It's been here a long time. We've been coming, I think my husband came the first time in 1999. Um, so for us, it's it's something we all do together every year. I have a costume for my son. Uh, it's Tokopi, which is a Pokemon character. And I think he's going to have fun running around in it. That's coming up, but first this. There's a lot to do this Labor Day weekend besides Dragon Con right here in the Atlanta region, so we'll start with college football. Georgia State has a home game against Army this Saturday. Kickoff is at noon. Also Saturday, Georgia Tech welcomes Northern Illinois. Kickoff is at 7.30. And two other matchups taking place for the annual Chick-fil-A kickoff games inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Alabama versus Miami, and Louisville takes on Ole Miss. Not much of a sports fan. How about the Taste of Soul taking place near the AUC Center? There's food and music. Can't go wrong with that combination. Also, the PGA Tour Championship over at East Lake Golf Course. The Atlanta Jazz Festival all weekend at Piedmont Park. There are two organizations celebrating Atlanta's black LGBT community, one at Central Park, and the other sponsored by Pure Heat is at Piedmont Park. Speaking of parks, House in the Park is back. The House Music Movement takes place at Grant Park this weekend. And also, get ready for this guy. Oh, yeah. That is the latest from the very talented Mark Anthony, whom, by the way, will be in concert at State Farm Arena Sunday night. By the way, you can take MARTA to most of these events. Check itsmarta.com. No matter what you do, stay safe this Labor Day weekend. And a reminder, many events will not allow the usual crowds in due to COVID-19 measures. So in other words, get there early. Coming up next, those moments we love from Dragon Con, including a two-minute epic radio drama, courtesy of me. If they gave an award for a two-minute epic radio drama, this would surely win. Stay tuned. In the year 2025, a battered and abandoned civilization retreats after a hundred years of war. They escape to become an underground colony. 
It would be decades later until a squadron of new fighters would emerge, battles ensued, a new war was beginning. The leaders are the descendants from a mighty force that once ruled the galaxy called Atlanta. These warriors were fearless, determined, and strangely enough, they really loved Steven's Keep. To ensure victory, two warriors are sent back in time to the year 2016. Why? I have no clue. I mean, I, I really don't know. They just asked me to read this thing, and uh, it doesn't actually make linear sense. I mean, the, the arc of the... It, it, it's not important. The place. Planet Earth. The city. Atlanta, the mission to discover the secrets of Dragon Corn. Yeah, I needed a little more feeling, Dave. Longtime producer Dave Barriswain there. I wonder if Spielberg and Ava DuVernay have these problems with talent. Probably not. You're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. I will recast the role for epic radio drama narrator coming soon. What a week, what a year. In fact, the last 19 months have been something. So we thought let's escape from reality a bit and relive some of our favorite Dragon Con moments here on Closer Look. We'll begin with Lisa Stabler. She stopped by when we were actually downtown recording a live edition of Closer Look and she stopped by to talk about the entire family dressing up for Dragon Con. They've been doing it for many years. She talks about the art of cosplay and why Dragon Con is a family event. Here's where we cue the dream sequence. Yes, cue the dream sequence. No, cue the dream sequence sound effect. Well, my husband and I first got introduced to Dragon Con in 2004. And we just came down for the afternoon on a sun, uh, Saturday to see what it was about. And we fell in love. And we had to come back. Our children were, at that time, only two and four years old. So it was a little difficult, we thought, for them to be um, exposed at that time because we still didn't know it ourselves. But then um, I just was looking at my Facebook today, and uh, I wanted to share the story where um, it came up a picture from eight years ago where it was the first year my son and daughter attended with us. And my son at that time was eight years old, and we had shaved his head, um, so his hair was in an arrow and spray-painted it blue, and put him in an Ang costume so he could be the lost airbender. Um, we have pictures of him meeting R2-D2 and um, all sorts of different characters, sword fighting when the Conan game was there, he got a blow-up sword. And my daughter, she decided she wanted to be the girl from Escape from Witch Mountain. And so we had a little Jaden who, at that time, was six years old, tooling around after her brother, huge smile on her face, being a character that she liked. And, um, and then my husband and I dressed up uh, separately. So it didn't matter that we weren't a group, as in we had to be the same uh, series, um, portrayal, family like that, but we all did our own thing. I was from Ultraviolet, and so I had purple long wig and a uh, big uh, sword, and, and uh, my husband actually did a Conan thing. Um, so, um, but then over the years, we've um, also done things together, where um, when Edward Furlong came, and um, he's the, he was the boy in uh, John Connor in Terminator 2, 
And when he came, we dressed my son as John Connor. And uh, I was Linda Hamilton's uh, Sarah Connor, and my husband was Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator. And it was a blast. Um, <laughs> last year, the kids wanted to do um, uh, characters from NCIS. So my daughter was Abby Shuto, and my son was uh, Dinozo. And uh, we actually um, were um, uh, photographed by the Marietta Daily Journal. And uh, so there are pictures of, of us in costume for that. It was fabulous. It was great. So, so how much conversation and planning does all <laughs> goes into this family <laughs> event? We, you know, we, we watch a lot of television together, and we go to the cinema together. We like to do things as a family. Um, you know, we're, we're close like that. And so as we, um, you know, find these shows that interest us, and we find these movies that really spark our imaginations and make us, uh, you know, feel really connected to them, we'll just say, oh, we're going to do that for Dragon Con. Or, oh, okay, let's go ahead and, you know, take uh, some thought about this. And we'll, then we'll, you know, get on Netflix and re-watch the series and zoom in on the costumes and see how we can create either sew or buy or whatever we can do to, um, you know, as Candice was saying, uh, pay homage to these characters and these shows that we really respect and love. Lisa Stabler from 2016, Closer Look Live at Dragon Con. Coming up next, we fast forward to Dragon Con 2018 and Closer Look invited panelists from the Women in Film Expanding Diversity with Geeks and Ghouls and Rock and Roll Rules. They all work in film and TV in some some form or fashion, either in front or behind the camera. And their resumes, I wish I had a resume like this, boast high productions like The Walking Dead, Stranger Things, Black Panther, Avengers, Infinity War, and more. But none of them have ever hosted a public radio program. <laughs> Joining me in studio is, I thought y'all were going to say something. We have Karen Cisse, an actor, writer, and producer, Casey Price, an executive producer's assistant. And I'm also joined by Shelly Schmall, Secretary for Women in Film and Television, Atlanta's Board of Directors, and Film Programming Manager for the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. I've never done any of that either. Oh, you need to come by. <laughs> Got lots of stuff going on. Let's begin here because we're in this space, we're in this time of the Me Too movement and, and times up and I just want to get you all your thoughts on are we seeing some changes already are we seeing changes in narrative or attitudes or how women in general are, are you know treated and I hate using that word treated because we shouldn't even have to have this conversation but are you all seeing anything based on these two movements and, and Shelly I'll start with you well I think the the first thing is to really recognize the the swell of support that happened when this movement first started and knowing that um, women in film in LA actually opened a 24-hour hotline that women could call in and leave messages and, and get action for what and here have have them be heard mm -hmm. um, by their peers to help take action or at least be able to lend support um, so I think that with that, that was the first step. Karen, what about you? Well, I mean, um, I think number one, it's not just how we're treated, it's mm -hmm. how we feel about ourselves and the empowerment that we feel and the sisterhood. You know, I remember that Kesha moment on stage. I That was my cover photo, because I'm like, see what can happen when women support one another. But you can even look politically right here in Georgia, the record number of women that are on the ballots this November, led by Stacey Abrams, who is on track to break history right here. So it's definitely, I look at the Me Too uh, Time's Up moment being the end of an era, and now we're getting ready to start a new era. Casey. 
Um, a personal example <clears throat> is that when I started on Avengers, my boss, who was the producer, just came to me and he said, um, you let me know if anyone is being disrespectful or mistreating anyone else on the set, I will not stand for it. So that was a good way to start off the show and made me feel a lot more comfortable about joining that crew. Had you ever had that experience? Had you ever had someone come to you and say that? Nope. Really? So, yeah, that that showed me that he was a really good boss and, you know, that he was going to keep an eye and take good care of his crew. Let's then talk about the industry. We, we've been ha hearing the push for more diversity and inclusion. And depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different definition because sometimes diversity looks different <laughs> to different people. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, are we seeing some, some progress, Bait? I'll stay with you, Casey. Um, I definitely think so. I mean, especially having uh, just also come off of Black Panther. Um, I was uh, a cast assistant on that one, talent assistant to Andy Serkis. Mm -hmm. And um, just, I mean, that was such an amazing, amazing experience and such an important movie, you know, and so I feel very honored to have been part of that. I, I feel like it was, made, you know, we made history. Let our audience know what, would you mean say a talent assistant? Wasn't yes, it? Um, that is basically a, a personal assistant to the actor, mm -hmm. actors. But you didn't get me on the set. So. <laughs> we'll talk about that. You didn't that ask. <laughs> Karen, what about you? We've seen Marvel some Marvel security is very tight. <laughs> you know, Sorry, I can imagine. Hashtag understatement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? You've seen some, some progress? Well, definitely. But, you know, progress takes time. You know, a lot of times we get caught on where we are right now and where we should be. And we haven't really looked at the progress that we have made over the years. Um, it, it takes people at the top who make mm -hmm. the decisions, who hire the people, who, you know, what is challenging is because when people are left out for so long, it's difficult to accrue the same experience mm -hmm. to be hired at a certain level. So that is an additional challenge. However, the more you empower one person, it's exponential. You know, when I get hired and we have more people of color on set then my stand-in is of color and you know people who are doing my hair and it's it's exponential you how know? long have you been in the business may I ask <laughs> I've been acting since I was 10 mm -hmm. but the film and television um, aspect of it probably about 15 years but it took so long you know the industry was here not mm -hmm. here and so the last five years have been amazing you stay you say you stay busy I well you know that's relative um, <laughs> right? you know. it looks great on social media well that's all that matters <laughs> Shelly I want to I want to get to diversity and inclusion behind the cameras or behind the scripts because you are in touch with a lot of independent producers and directors and filmmakers what are you seeing in that area? Are we seeing more women? Yeah, absolutely. For the past two years, I've also been chair of the um, Women in Film Showcase here in Atlanta. And this year, we've we've seen a um, up, uptick in the number of submissions that we've had. So we're finding that women are wanting to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. They want to create their own crews. They want to they want to see their visions come to life and because of that as as speaking to what Karen said there is diversity coming through in that in that vein but is there an area and I and I'll, I'll tell you mm -hmm. why I'm going to ask this question because I had a conversation with an, an actress a few years ago who said I love sci-fi she was a well-known actress she wanted to do more with sci-fi she had a meeting according to her with a big executive and allegedly reportedly the executive said well we don't see doing sci-fi with black people because we don't think black people see them in the future see themselves in the future 
So here you have a genre. Here you have a, a space that is at that time, according to her, was limiting the representation. So are we seeing strides now? I mean, we had Black Panther, but it was 2018. Well, we got a Black superhero. Well, but you know, last night, Dragon Con had the Welcome to Wakanda experience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Wakanda was just the theme this year. Folks is representing. And I think maybe, you know, I grew up loving Star Wars. I grew up loving sci-fi and being told that black people weren't in the sci-fi. I'm like, I beg to differ. I watch Buck Rogers. Thank you very much. But until we see ourselves, it's not going to be something that we're in. So a lot of people of color have not accepted it until mm -hmm. we sell ourselves and I think it really kind of kicked off we can say Wesley Snipes back with Blade but we can say the kickoff was really Luke Cage and we're we felt included in the conversation included in the storytelling and before that one could argue we we people of color we had Nichelle Nichols mm -hmm. in Star Trek yep. and that was it but even in terms of women yeah Wonder Woman, the success mm -hmm. of Wonder Woman a few years ago, and people are like, oh, wow, so a female superhero can actually carry at the box office, and people are going, where have you been? Right. Can I let you take that? Um, well, I was just going to say, uh, the follow-up, you know, okay. to these Avengers films, like Captain Marvel, she's getting her own movie, and, um, and yeah, so that's super exciting to see where that goes, because... Um, we didn't really, you know, I don't really know much about her and um, she's, um, a, I think, going to be a really interesting one to watch. Well, and and I know I'll get an email on this. I, I mean, let me just say, I love Spider-Man, so don't send me an email. But how many more Spider-Man movies do we need? <laughs> how many more Superman movies do we but need? But look at how diverse this how Spider-Man Homecoming true. was. That's very And true. it wasn't just black, white. It was Asian, you know. Mm -hmm. And so... There are opportunities for expansion in every kind of way. Shelly, I want to ask you about the importance of Atlanta and all this, because we can all remember, and Karen talked about, you know, look, 15, 20 years ago, Atlanta wasn't considered this hotbed for production, for every aspect. But now Atlanta's at the top. How important is that? And also having access for local actors, actresses, producers, filmmakers, grip, lighting, catering, all that. Well, that's the education piece that comes in. That's where we have the PA Academy. We've got um, we've got film studies. Um, we've got film production studies. And it's training our Atlanta, um, you know, our Atlanta population who are interested in film to be able to be on, our, on the sets um, and knowing that those barriers don't exist and we can knock them down. Um, it is a billion dollar industry here. And so to be able to bring more people into those into those spaces um, and also mentorship is really important. That was my next um, question. And this, this is a really big thing that WIFTA does um, is being able to match people and have our educational programs. There's always networking going on. We've got networking um networking evenings at least once a month we've got producer tracks um we have opportunities pitch fest that happened this past november where we were able to bring in um studio executives to listen and and hear from people in atlanta who wanted to pitch their stories so it's creating that access for the community to have their ideas heard Karen, I asked the legendary Pam Greer, who was sitting in that same chair no, that you stop were sitting. It. Yes, really? <laughs> and I asked her about, you know, when you started in the business, was there someone you could talk to, go to? And she was like, no, I had to learn. Kind of, there were a few, but I kind of had to learn and absorb everything on my own. When you look back to when you started, did you have someone 
that you could go to that was a mentor for you? Well, again, I started when I was 10, mm -hmm. and I, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and I was a theater, musical theater girl. So uh, Freedom Theater was, you know, is a black theater, so I've always had that. And then when I came here, I went to Spelman. So I've had support mm -hmm. within, you know, I've always been supported by black women um, in some way, shape, and form. However, the big difference that I've seen within the last couple of years, and I'll credit Shonda Rhimes with, um, and, uh, you know, Mara Brock-Akil, Salima Akil, mm -hmm. with putting black women in leading roles is that now, you know, when we would go on auditions, we'd be like, oh, we'd never be able to work together because only one of us will yeah. get hired. There could only be one black girl. But going back to Luke Cage, we're watching that and I'm watching with my son who's in this. So all of this is normal to him now, a black president, you know, black superheroes. It's all normal to him. And we get to look at a scene and there's three women of color in a scene together talking about what they're going to do to solve a problem mm -hmm. and I just paused it. It was like, this is ah, great. This is amazing. Because when I was growing up, I had Sanford and Son, Good Times, and the Jeffersons. Okay. For a minute, that was all okay. that you had. All right. You know, and then we had to move on. And then you had to look at the back of Jet to see <laughs> right. who was going to be on what show that week. Thank right. goodness for Soul Train. <laughs> Casey, when we talk about mentoring and also in increasing that pipeline so that we're not having this conversation five or ten years from now, how do you see your role in doing that? Because what you do sounds cool. Are you able to tell younger little Casey's, hey, this is something you might be interested in? How are you, do, or do you see yourself being that mentor? Definitely. I mean, I, I have a couple of people that have already reached out to me, you know, to ask me how I've gotten in the business. And um, I'm happy to speak with anyone who has any questions about that. And um, I recently kind of changed gears. I um, worked on a project as a script supervisor, like a little teaser um, for a TV show. And um, so the first thing I did, I had never script supervised before. The first thing I did was reach out to the scripty from Avengers, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, she was more than happy to have a discussion with me. She even sent me some forms that she uses, which I couldn't have done it without those. So that was mm -hmm. so nice of her. I just find that the women in this business are very supportive of one another. Um, I actually got the job on Avengers because the uh, woman who was the production coordinator on Black Panther um, called you know, and recommended me when the position opened up and the unit production manager, who was also a woman, mm -hmm. she recommended me as well. I had a lot of one, great women in my corner helping me get to where I am today. So, um, Is there a script inside of you, Casey? I feel like there is. You got a script in there? <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that creative process in general, because as we call them creatives, something stirs you. What led you into this industry to begin with, Casey? Well, um, I was always interested in music and television production and promotion, and I actually started in the music industry, and I did everything from manage bands to book bands to publicity, and then um, I actually fell into uh, the film industry through um, a nanny agency, because I do that as well, and um, the nanny agency uh, placed me with these actors who had just had a baby, and they said, hey, listen, we don't actually need a, um, a nanny. We need personal assistant, and I'm like, oh, perfect, and so I went from there to my next uh, 
uh, cast personal assistant job to my next and then ended up on, yeah, just kind of it spiraled, you know, in a really positive direction. And and now I've been um, the executive producer's assistant on three movies and um, and yes, dabbling in the script supervisor um, realm as well. So I feel like anything that I do is going to make me a better producer ultimately because that's what I want to do that was my next question I know there's more now do you wait at the end of the credits to make sure they got your name spelled of course I'm just checking all y'all do that's like one of the most (laughs) fun parts too you you know you're not supposed to film inside a theater well (laughs) no one saw that right you said you know since the age of 10 Karen that you had been mixed in this but did you have any idea this it would leads you to here i mean you've been doing what you want to do now and and even though you said the last five years it's really kicked up but did you get discouraged at any time oh (laughs) Uh -oh. (laughs) i feel a story coming on oh that's a whole bunch of stories a series uh i mean yeah this business is very discouraging you know i thought i was would have already been a star for 20 years by now you know what I mean? I thought I was going to get discovered when I was like 12 and then 16 and then 20 So you should already have your, walk, your Hollywood stars, yes, what you're I saying. Yes, I thought that. And, you know, it's that is probably one of the hardest things is that each – I just had a birthday to pass, and each birthday is like, <laughs> next birthday, this is it, yay. Right? And it's, it's really hard. You have to have a strong group of people around you who um, are both in this industry and not. So when you're feeling – you know, I joke where it's just – We've talked each other off the ledge. Why am I doing this? This is a ridiculous business. And that's what you have to have. You have to have a strong group of people around Mm -hmm. you. You have to fill your life with other things that matter other than this business. You have to be more than just an actor. You have to, you know, give back to the community, do Mm -hmm. other things, join organizations. You know, Women in Film, I was on the board of Women in Film back in the 90s. And all of the connections that I have, I can trace back to Women in Film in some kind of ways. That's personal and professional. Shelly, how important is networking and, and meeting as many people as possible and finding folks that are willing to help you? I mean, it's it's amazingly important. I think that that's the fiber of everything in the entertainment industry is who you know and where you're at. Um, and I think, you know, it's through social media that you can network. It's through, I think, organically face-to-face meeting with people. I think when you have a connection with somebody and you actually take the time to, even if it's just an hour, meet for coffee. The way I got into WIFTA was through Kathy Palme at the um, Georgia World Congress Center, who is the events manager there who books for locations. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other part of the entertainment industry that exists. She's the one who brought me into WIFTA who opened this whole world to me of of different networking opportunities and the fiber behind how the industry comes together in a different way. How do you gauge success and how do you gauge the whether or not these all these initiatives are working from Me Too and Time's Up? You know, just because we see Black Panther, how do you gauge that there are more people of color working? Are there more women behind the scenes? Do we look for the Oscars and the Golden Globes and the Emmys to tell us? Because even with the Emmys, you know, for a long time, it was Isabel Sanford and Jack A. They were the only women that had won Emmys for comedy. Right. And That's, then Carrie Washington was the first in drama for since drama. Julia. It was like 40 years yes. with Diane Carroll. So it, do, do we look for awards and, and recognition to gauge that? Or you just say, no, don't worry about that. Let's just get more people in the candidate pool. I think it's getting more people in the candidate pool and the awards will come. 
Okay. Yeah, agreed. It's just got to be representation. It's got to mm -hmm. be diversity behind the scenes, diversity with the people who are green lighting, who are hiring. Green lighting, who are hiring. Yeah. I've heard that before. Okay, so I'll give you the last word. How um, do we gauge the success of all this? Well, the, I, I loved the fact that the last little sizzle um, that I worked with, um, actually the last two, one was a, a female director and producer, and actually the last one before that was as well, female um, key grip. Uh, camera operator, locations manager, stills photographer, you know, um, just so many women on that set. And then it was it was such great energy and, and very inspiring to see. And I said, this needs not this needs to be the norm, not the exception. All right. So we're networking. I'm going to go ahead and say this right here because the tulips are coming up. If y'all need a band to score mm -hmm. a project, all right, I'm, I'm not their manager, but I am for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> so, if you, you know, it's about networking, right? Right. Definitely. Working together. Casey Price, Karen Cisse, and, and also Shelly Schmalls. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. From DragonCon 2018, a closer look discussion about women in film. It was called Expanding Diversity with Geeks and Ghouls and Rock and Roll Rules. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. A toast to the booty. We'll do that. Or how else can you capture a boogie if you don't attack from the back? To the rear, march. My name is the one some people call me the phone. Y'all supposed to clap. <laughs> what y'all doing? That is the master George Clinton, and of course, Parliament Funkadelic, like no other. Remember the first time you heard Parliament Funkadelic? Yeah, you couldn't believe it. George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, home of the extraterrestrial sisters and brothers. Thank you, Kevin. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR on this Funkadelic edition of Closer Look. And what a great weekend to be in the Atlanta area for what we call creatives. And, of course, Dragon Con, it's an author's and reader's haven. All genres will be represented, and that includes science fiction and fantasy. But we've also been hearing over the last few years, and even further than that, that there's a gap when it comes to publishing works by authors of color. In fact... Over in, uh, I think it was about 2015, I read, and this is what I read because I do read, it was from Fireside Fiction that had commissioned and released a report detailing speculative fiction magazines and online fiction sites that were failing to publish stories by black writers. In fact, they cited that year, of the 2039 short stories published in 2015, only 38 were published by black authors. We're going to talk about all this because joining me today, we've assembled some Atlanta-based authors to talk about this, and some will be guests and panelists doing Dragon Con, and all will be in attendance at the Decatur Book Festival. 
So I'm going to read to you what they told me. First up, we have L.M. Davis. She's a young adult middle grade author who writes about shapeshifters, aliens, immortals, and witches. Yes. <laughs> All folks I do not hang out with. <laughs> Alan Jones. They're cool people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. Alan Jones. See, by day, he's a business software consultant, but Alan also writes. And matter of fact, when he was a child, he used to make up stories for himself and his brothers to act out during playtime after school. I've been there. And Violet Meyer, she's a lover of all things supernatural and loves to write paranormal, paranormal fantasy and horror. And she's got a great story as well. And Gerald Coleman, who is a philosopher, theologian, poet, and sci-fi fantasy author. And then there's just me. <laughs> I have two cats. That's all I got. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Ellen Davis, I'm going to start with you because when you reached out to Closer Look, you said, quote, we are authors who have been carving out a place for black folks and black stories in the speculative space for decades collectively. Yes. Um, and I think that um, and the reason why I wanted to reach out to you, because a part of what I what I think is important is the archiving of that project. Right. That we take note and record the effort of um, writers, of other creatives in speculative spaces where particularly they, the, the narrative is, is that number one, there are no writers, mm -hmm. and number two, that there is no audience. And I was a child who fantasy fiction, science fiction was my bread and butter. That's what I read, that's what I loved. If I wasn't reading a school book, I was reading A Wrinkle in Time um, <laughs> or, or The Dark is Rising or something like that. I was also the child who could not find characters of color. Mm -hmm. Not just, not even black characters, characters of color in the fantasy that I loved. It was really difficult to find. Um, and so, um, um, and, and I just remember how I used to love and be joyful about whenever I did manage to find a character of color. So it became important to me as an adult when I saw my nephew growing up the same way, loving this fiction, to write stories where he could see himself. And I'm, that was my genesis. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around the table here. I'm going to go back. I'm going to start with Violet. Can you, what she just said, that your same experience growing up? Absolutely. I always yearned for stories that I wanted to read. As a reader, of course, you put, your, you put your hand on everything, but nothing really represents you. So when you read the stories, it's like it has nothing to do with me. I didn't even truly relate. So when I became a writer. I write. I wrote stories that I wanted to see and I still mm -hmm. write books that I want to read and I build characters that I think people like me and not just people like me but people in general understand that it's a human experience and that we all should be reflected within it. Alright, let's go over to Alan. Alan, same sentiment from you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, didn't see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, like LaRose mentioned, Ellen mentioned that not a lot of writers of color and nothing that really spoke to me mm -hmm. and I think it's really important that we tell our stories. It's not an exclusionary thing or we're excluding other people, but I think other voices need to be heard. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Gerald? Yeah, I think one, one of the interesting things about uh, how uh, each of us have met one another and come into contact with other black creatives as we've done uh, conventions and uh, festivals that and ended up on various panels that we all find this similar kind of group experience where our gateway drugs were either comic books or scholastic books in mm -hmm. elementary school. Mm -hmm. You know, I read Rats of Nim and, and uh, Watership Down uh, with my two or three dollars, you know, in, in, mm -hmm. in elementary school, mm -hmm. uh, living for the scholastic book fair. It was a big highlight of the year. And, and the more that we moved into these genres and, and read, the more we re looked around and realized, hey, wait a minute, something's missing. We're having to take an extra step 
in the reading process in order to relate to the to the protagonist. And so when when we got the finally got to the place where we said, you know what, I'm going to write. It was it was obvious and natural that we would begin to write those stories that were missing from our uh, you know our childhood or young adulthood as we were reading all these genres. And our our wonderful wonderful Octavia Butler. We always talk mm-hmm. about her significance, mm-hmm. and one would argue you would think that since her time and the brilliance of Kindred and all that, that we would have more pe- folks of color, authors who are out there sort of at that top. Not to say that you have to be recognized in mm-hmm. order to, to validate your talent, but you would think in 2019, in that stat that I read about few people of co- black authors getting published, even online. What does yeah. that say? What's yeah. the problem? Well, I think the issue is really the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Right. And the gatekeepers keepers always look historically, and they look at what they know and what they think they can get through their bosses even if they know better. So they support, it's like racism. You may consider yourself not racist, but you still enforce a racist So it's not they don't think you're talented. They're, are you saying that the gatekeepers are concerned about, will this have an audience, will it sell? The well, same thing happened to Denzel. Well, and, that, and, and that's yeah. something that I ran up against when I was first shopping my, my novel Interlopers. When I was going to pub, uh, uh, agents, I was getting, there's, there, that was a, the response that I was getting, there's not a market for this. And, and, they, and I thought that that was a presumption because I knew there was a market. I knew there were kids out there like me <laughs> be, reading so these books. Just to be clear, saying that there's not a market for it because the characters are uh, folks of color. I mean, it's sci-fi and fantasy when you right. think that, I mean. <laughs> Ellen was, was right that the presumption is that we don't read. But I, every, <laughs> I or, read from, a, from the time I was a small child. My mother, I'm a second generation science fiction and fantasy lover. You know, we all come from communities that that read this stuff but the presumption was that that we don't and that there's not a market for it i mean take the example of black panther that just came out right right? Mm -hmm. the 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 prevailing belief was that oh okay we'll put it out it'll make you know a couple of hundred million dollars and we can say that we filled that slot right Mm -hmm. we in 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 the mcu we finally here's here's your black character you can stop talking let's check off this box let's check Mm -hmm. off that box you can stop talking to us about it and then what's what what does black panther do it makes more than a billion dollars at the box office there's a market Mm -hmm. for this and it's it the problem is as alan said a moment Mm -hmm. ago that there's this structure in place that has been in place despite the Octavia Butlers and the Samuel Delaney's mm-hmm. and the Charles Saunders, despite there being relevant examples of successful people of color as authors, there's this there's this systemic structure in place that, mm-hmm. that makes it that much more difficult to get through. And it, and it goes to just that point of we filled the slot, right? So there can be only one. It's a well, Highlander thing. Well let's, <laughs> well, let's talk about a slot because now horror is kind of the... the Forgive me for this. The new black horror is the new thing. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and Val, I want to bring you to the conversation because there, there was this assumption that, you know, black folks weren't, you know, dig. They weren't digging horror. And then, you know, our, our, our guy comes out with something. Mm-hmm. And now there's this whole conversation about black horror. So right. now we've added something to it. Does that, does that disturb you sometimes? We have to put that the race, the ethnicity tag on the genre. Absolutely. Because I grew up during an era where we grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons and Elvira came on. Mm-hmm. And I watched horror, That I, and they came on late at night. So that's all I ever loved. And to divide it into just black horror, my first black horror movie that I remember seeing was Blackula. 
And I thought that title in itself was just insane. It wasn't the greatest <laughs> cinema masterpiece, but hey, it was all we had. <laughs> it's all you had, so you yeah. you know you, you get it and it. you you love it. Mm. Even. And now it's like black people. We've always supported horror movies. We've always, I mean, that's the thing you do after school is go to see a horror movie. I have to ask this: <laughs> Who remembers JD's Revenge? <laughs> the, the terrible movie. I remember Tales from the Hood. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about where do we go from here because exposure is key, and and, and some of you are going to be at Dragon Con, and then some all of you are going to be at the Decatur Book Festival. How key is that? And we'll go around the room. We'll start with you, Ellen. Um, I think particularly for those of us who are independent authors, that exposure is really important because one of the things that the traditional publishing apparatus offers is a platform and a distribution network that uh, can get your books out there. Uh, so when we are independent authors, what we have to do is we have to build our own community and we really rely on that word of mouth. So mm -hmm. it's really important. We're going to be at the Cater Book Festival with our books tomorrow, booth 720. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, look, let's get it out there. Bo booth 720. Um, it's really important, number one, we, we that people buy we want we need people to purchase our books but then we need people to talk about our books we need them to tell their friends uh because that's going to help us to to get to the next book and yeah. that's what all yeah. we, we all want to do yeah, and exposure. i would say that point too i mean we're all on mission here we want to grow the brand so like we, each individual wants to sell books we all want to sell books but we want to grow the brand so that it won't be this difficult for the next generation right so i think that's kind of the main thing Gerald? Exposure? Yeah, uh, it's it's vital. It's one of the things that, that one of the things you do as an indie author is you you do uh, uh, science fiction fantasy conventions. You do festivals. You look for every opportunity. And for us specifically, we're looking for all kinds. We did the um, uh, Sweet Auburn Fest one yep. year. We, we're <laughs> yep. always looking for opportunities to uh, let our community, our specific community know we're out here, the books are here, the stuff that you're looking for is here. And every time we do that, people are, are very receptive and very, I mean, very surprised, like, oh, wow, you know, like they didn't know that we were out here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of kind of getting the word out. And Violet, whether it's a, a little person or an older person, seeing folks that look like them, that look like them in a space where maybe they want to try their hand at writing, but how important is that? And I'm sure people ask you, hey, how did you how did you get into this? And do you tell them about, I won't say the pitfalls, but what to expect, I guess, if they're really going to be serious about writing? I tell people just write. Whether you ever sell one book or a million books, you write what you want to see. Mm -hmm. And when people see that you love what you do, your passion for what you do will shine through. And, of course, it is very difficult to sell your art as a minority. However, I think because of the death of the brick and mortal bookstore mm -hmm. and independent artists being more respected and recognized, it gave us a voice when you couldn't get through these traditional um, places. So now you don't have to rely on the big bookstores in order to get your thing out. But awareness is everything because mm -hmm. people can't support what they don't know about mm -hmm. it's so many phenomenal mm -hmm. independent authors yes. mm -hmm. and we have to support each other and go out and do these festivals and cons and when you find a great artist a great writer you share it you tell people because word of mouth is still the greatest form of advertisement mm -hmm. but before you wrap up and i'm going to stay with you for a second and we go around the table you are the granddaughter of a dream interpreter how much of that has been the base or part of some of the stuff you write it is probably 100%. Mm. I grew up at the foot of my great-grandmother, who was born in 1892. And she died when I was eight years old. But I remember 
her, we didn't watch TV. I sat at her foot and she told me stories all the time. It was ghost stories and she saw mermaids and told me about the first freak shows. So for me, even when I found out I loved to write, it always went to the left. So yeah. I said, obviously this is my genre. I couldn't write but supernatural fiction. Cheryl, what about you? What, what motivates you? What's the process for you when you write? Wow. Um, the process for me is really about uh, taking all of the, the the things that I've been exposed to over the course of my life and, and, and really kind of looking for a particular way into a, a story idea. As I said earlier, I'm second generation. My mother uh, was the original, into the original Star Trek. We, we go see all the Star Trek films together still to this day. Uh, she's the one that exposed me to Lord of the Rings and um, those early um, books in, in mm -hmm. the genre. And, and so for me, it's, it's really about a love of the genre and trying to, uh, to approach it in a way that brings the uniqueness that our culture brings to that particular genre and that particular brand. So. Alan? Yeah, I would say for me, it's really a calling. I just feel like I'm an evangelist for creative writing uh, from African-American perspective. And I get a thrill out of seeing, um, I go online and see people reselling my book overseas and stuff. And it's like, most people think that's a negative. I'm thinking that's good. Someone else is, is getting access. And then when someone has read my book, they want their book club to read my book. Mm -hmm. I'm going to a book club. Someone bought my book and they're like, well, I love this book. So I want to let all my friends know. That's what I, that's what I, that's my positive reinforcement. All right. And we'll let you end it here. Your process and what motivates you to keep doing what you're doing? Well, like I said, I, and I think I called the, the, the child my nephew, but he's not. He's my cousin, but he's young enough to be my nephew. Um, um, my, co I, my cousin, I saw him when he was seven and eight, and he was growing up, and he was loving fantasy. And, I, and I'm, the, I'm the cousin, slash aunt, <laughs> who always gives books. That's mm -hmm. what I do, because I'm like, children read. Um, and I, so I started to try to think, where can I find books with kids who look like him in this genre that he loves? And I could not think of one. That was about a little black boy, right, in, in a fantasy world. So I said, I'm going to write him a book. Mm -hmm. And that was, the, that was the beginning of Interlopers. And so my larger mission, quite honestly, is to write black children into fantasy worlds. Because I want them to know that we, our stories count everywhere. And, mm -hmm. our story, and they and are necessary for everyone. L.M. Davis, Alan Jones, Violet Meyer, and Gerald Coleman. We're talking science fiction and fantasy. Thank you all for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank you for having us. Feel free to write us. science fiction about a public radio host. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, y'all. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you here on the program, just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.